Hi, the Zickland peoples. You're listening to Your Morning Jacket. Uh, I mean, Your Morning Joe. Uh, damn, obviously, you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. Take it away, guys. From Billboard magazine, why are we still measuring artists' success with a major label yardstick? It's a guest call. Also from Billboard, Billboard's U.S. Moneymakers, the top paid musicians of 2020. From Jacobs Media, vinyl keeps setting records. From Amplify You, how a viral song on TikTok turned into an artist's worst nightmare. And from Trapital, will Songfinch become cameo for songs? We've got this and a ton more. It's Jay Gilbert and myself putting stuff in your ears on episode number 50 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Woohoo! Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. <laughs> well, good morning, Jay. It is good to good see morning. you. We we had lunch on Friday. It was nice to see you then as well. And as yeah, with all of our lunches, that new abnormal of you and I solving all the industry's problems over a cheeseburger at Islands. It, absolutely, and uh, <laughs> and it's like every time you know, it's like oh, we got to go, and it's yeah, we haven't covered half the things we wanted to talk about. But, uh, That's exactly right. I, I look forward to those. And and before we get going here, how about that intro <laughs> from Glenn Peoples, Glenn Peoples from Billboard? <laughs> he he's a friend uh, i i think the world of glenn and he's uh he's got that dry humor he's and he has got dry sense of humor absolutely me thank and you it's glenn. A, it, it's appropriate because we've got a several articles from billboard that we're going to talk yeah, about yeah we today, do which is perfect episode you, number 50 uh, it's 50 can you believe it we're it's closing 50. in on that one year mark yes we are yes and they we said are. it wouldn't last and they said it wouldn't last <laughs> well talk to me about our sponsors jay because without the kind help of our sponsors boy we would uh not be able to do this so yeah we, owe we them the best huge sponsors um, and a couple new ones coming on board here uh, in the coming weeks. But, you know, the people who have been there from day one uh, include HypeBot. You know, since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. 
You betcha. Over 55 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 530,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. And doesn't it feel good to say tour dates? Yeah, yes, sure it does. does. Yes, yeah. it does. And, you know, uh, I think last week, I, yeah, we did briefly talk about McCartney 321, which is on Hulu. It's well, the, at the uh, time, I think you had, you were ahead of me. I think you had seen two or three episodes, and I had only seen one. Yes, that's right. So you've seen the whole thing now. I've seen the whole thing. I'll probably watch it again. <laughs> what do you think? I loved your, it. You know? uh, what's your review? I mean, it, it is, uh, it's pretty deep. Uh, detail. So, if, so you got to be a Beatles fan. Hopefully, you're a Beatles fan, and you have to kind of understand a little bit about how recording works and all of those things because it's it's definitely some inside baseball stuff. But it is absolutely fascinating, and he is so charming. And you know, you get a chance to really listen to some of the, the those elements of some of the awesome Beatles songs mm-hmm. and the bass lines and what was going on when when they were recording those and. It's a it's a fun fun show. Or it sure is. Six episodes, um, I think. I think it's yeah, six episodes. Six, six episodes, and you can really see how you know the sausage is made. My favorite part was when they would uh, at the mixing board they would kind of pull some things down so you could just hear uh, the bass or just hear the yeah. drums and bass or just hear the vocals, and I I just love hearing that because we're so used to hearing it all together mixed mm-hmm. a certain way. Yeah. And the other part of this, and I'm sure you caught this too, is, you know, Rick Rubin, you know, just turned into a kid again. You know, he's yes. sitting there, you know, it's like Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live talking about talking to Paul McCartney. Remember yes. that time? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And he yeah. was lit up. He was smiling. He was bouncing around listening to the songs. And Paul seemed to really enjoy that trip down memory lane, too. What and it was in black and white, which I love yeah. as a photographer. It's so shot beautifully. It's beautifully. shot beautifully. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. And they had those tapes. Um, uh, you've Ma- seen masking these record- tape. Yeah, the masking tape where they write down maybe what instrumentation is on. So when they put that on the soundboard, they know which slider is associated with what for which track. And they had I don't know maybe a dozen of them, you know, hanging off the soundboard. One for each song. Yeah, uh, it was. Absolutely, yeah. and they, I need to go back and look and see what console that was because I think they were using one of the old, an old console, maybe one of the EMI consoles. I don't know because interesting, uh, yeah. So it, it's a really, it's worth watching without a doubt. And if you're a Beatles yeah. fan, it will bring a smile to your face. And I do know from because I worked for Rick at at uh, American and Deaf American Recordings and. Uh, like many in the business of recording, he is a gigantic Beatles fan. And so, I, like you yeah. said, he must have just been, you know, nervous and smiling ear to ear. And it shows. Definitely yeah. shows. Yeah. Well, Jay, let's uh, let's strap into the uh, to the control panel here and chat about this first one, which is really a great article. It's from Billboard. It's a guest column. Why are we still measuring artist success with a major label yardstick? Yeah. And uh, you know what? It's it's a great it's a it, it, it's one of those things where you kind of think about it and you go, yeah, you know, you're right. And and I one one thing I I would say though is because you and I started in major labels uh, for, and worked there for a long time, and 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 we came of age at a certain time and in our careers, and I wonder if 
if you are new to the business, if you're newly in the business, if you are still defining success with a major label yardstick. Oh, I think absolutely. I talk yeah. to developing artists all the time. And of course, they are 100% using the same uh, yardstick uh, that he talks about here. And let's let's back up just a little bit. This was uh, a guest column with Joel Andrew. And Joel Andrew is the president of CD Baby. And uh, just by coincidence, um, I had him scheduled for my other podcast, Music Biz Weekly, with Michael Brandvold. So this came out uh, on July 20th. And like two days later, we interviewed him on Music oh, Biz wow. Weekly. Perfect so it time. just happened to align. So if you look at the lead story in your morning coffee, which is this one, right underneath it, I put um, a link to the podcast uh, where we kind of dig in a little bit further. But, uh, you know, Joel is spot on. Um, he is not only the president of CD Baby, but he's a musician and he knows how the, uh, the system works. And we dig into, you know, why we define success for independent artists, you know, the same way we do, you know, for the top 1%. And I can tell you that a lot of the meetings that I attend with new artists and new artists managers, they, they're looking at, well, what's the social footprint, okay? How many Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, um, you know, followers do we have? Okay, well, that's, that's interesting, but it can be deceptive. I can tell you that if you've ever worked with any artist that's been on American Idol, The Voice, you know, America's Got Talent, wh whatever, any of those type shows, that they can grow a huge social following quickly and it's very engaged while they're on the show. Mm -hmm. But typically after that, they don't unfollow, they don't unlike. So you may have an artist, and we've seen this over and over again, that has this huge social footprint that's not engaged. They're, they're yeah. not anymore, right? So then the other thing that people look at on the major label side is, well, let's look at the commerce, sales, streams, and downloads. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know, Olivia Rodrigo, you know, her last track is, you know, pushing 500 million plays. So it's not really a fair comparison when you're a new developing artist. You need to look at what we call the like competitive artists. What are artists at your level and what, what kind of uh, metrics are they getting? So you're comparing apples to apples and not apples to chainsaws. You know? <laughs> As I often do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it was interesting because, you know, he kind of starts saying that uh, MIDI estimated that in 2020, artist direct revenues jumped by nearly 35% make, uh, made up more, uh, which made up more than 5% of the global yeah. market and broke the billion dollar mark. The formula for artist success has been the same practically for a century, though. The top 1% of performers, entertainers are wealthy, powerful and famous stars and the remaining musicians, songwriters, performers and artists are considered failures. If the music of the 99% does not fit the mold of commercial radio or the hot new app, it doesn't get past the major label or al algorithm gatekeepers. So promoters, brands, and marketers ignore it. Mm -hmm. And you know, this, has yeah. been, this, this, is, this has an impact on the collective consciousness of what gets heard, but also what is considered good or successful. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned... Um, uh, you know, the TV shows, the, the talent shows, America's Got Talent and The Voice mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I think they have done a lot of harm to the industry. I don't know what you think of that. Um, I, 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 
you know, we, my favorite artists are unique artists. You know, we lost uh, Biz Marquis last week. Or, yeah, last week, I think it was. Mm-hmm. That guy never would have got on The Voice. Neil Young wouldn't have gotten on The Voice. Bob Dylan wouldn't have gotten on The Voice. I like unique, because to, to me, that kind of imparts on, on viewers what is good. And right. it's these, 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 you know, obviously extremely talented vocalists, but... I, I just I think that is a wrong way of looking at it, just like this article kind of essentially points out, which is there's so many yeah. other things to consider when you're talking about what is good. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think that it would be great to have one of those shows uh, for songwriters. Um, so it wasn't about yeah. the necessarily the delivery, but about the song itself. Right. A good song is a, a good song. And you're yeah. right. You know, would Tom Petty have made it past the first round on The Voice? No, no. but. There also has been so much great talent that's come out of the American Idol, you know, the Carrie Underwoods of the world. Mm-hmm. And there's been such phenomenal talent because it gives them another platform. And I have seen some things that weren't mainstream, you know, voices that weren't necessarily um, that kind of generic or homogenized things come out of those shows True. that have it's been not, yeah. stunning. Um, but but I, I hear what you're saying. I think that the the point that Joel's trying to make here is, you know, with 1% of the artists on streaming platforms accounting for around 90% of total streams, you can't just use that as, you know, your yardstick for success. And the thing that really jumped out at me is, you know, he says, of, of course, every artist creator who is devoted to their craft knows that the ability to make art and share it to the world is rewarding and fulfilling on its own merits, you know, without the need for ROI or revenue metrics. You know, we always tell people, if, if you're in this business for ROI, return on investment, you're in the wrong business. And he goes yeah. on to say, you know, just publishing music is counted as a success for many artists. It brings joy, passion, encouragement, empathy, and resilience to those in need. It challenges cultural norms. It gives us a glimpse into it, into other cultures that might seem foreign to us. So there's so much more value in music and in performing it and writing it and sharing it. And if it becomes just commerce then I think you're in the wrong business. I always tell people that, you know, being a musician uh, is who you are. It's not what you do. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many great musicians, and you and I have seen this over the years, um, that have tried to, uh, you know, win that popularity contest and have failed. And now they're, you know, raising a family or they've got some other career. And and that's great. There's no, you know, it's so rare, uh, you know, such a small percentage of artists actually get to uh, reach those levels of success, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I was just looking up to see when CD Baby started. Founded in 1998. Boy, they yeah. were early on. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and a great company, a really great company. And I've definitely used them over the years for a number of projects I was involved with. And mm-hmm. um, I can't believe it's been 23 years. <laughs> but I know. Again, it has been. So yeah. good, you know, good, uh, a wonderful thing to think about and and to implement. You know, how, how what are the metrics that we should be using these days? You know, it's it's not 1998, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, like it used to be. And, I will tell and a, you that a major I, I will, label deal is not like it used to be. No, no. <laughs> we were talking about that <laughs> earlier. Yeah. You know, I, I will tell you that I, I work with uh, one developing artist whose whose manager is really deep into the data. But the problem is, is she expects it to be linear that 
uh, you know, if you do a million streams on a song, that the next one should be a million five or two million. And another problem with that is it's a meritocracy, this, this marketplace, and it doesn't work like that. It, it, some tracks just resonate, and they're not always the best tracks on a release. It's the most accessible or the ones that the timing is right for. It's, you can't have the same marketing plan for every artist. It's, I wish it was that easy. Right. Yeah. But, but Joel, uh, Andrew, um, CD baby president, he did this, he wrote this guest column for billboard. Um, we talked to him about it on the music biz weekly podcast. I encourage people to take a listen, but he's a, he's a class act, good guy. And I'm glad he's brought this topic up to talk about. Yeah. And the next billboard article that we're going to talk about, which is <laughs> one of my favorite things, which is why are we... Uh, no, that's the other one. Sorry. Uh, Billboard's U.S. Moneymakers, mm -hmm. the top paid musicians of 2020. Who doesn't love looking at the list oh, of yeah. the top paid musicians of 2020? Especially in 2020 because of the pandemic. It was an odd year with exactly. touring coming to no a screeching tour. halt with people maybe, you know, like me, buying a little bit more vinyl than they would normally buy. Um it was an odd year. So, you yeah. know, maybe um, we can go through the top 10 here and, you know, you can start with number one, but I think it's, you know, like the sub headline here kind of says it all, you know, a year with minimal touring resulted in top streaming acts, many of them hip hop artists replacing the rock and country acts that fill arena and stadiums on billboards, annual ranking Taylor Swift tops the list. Yes, she does at, at $23.8 million. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, uh, you know, yeah. it's cut off. Yeah, twenty. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. When you when you have the PDFs of Billboard, certain things get cut off. Uh. But uh, yeah, twenty three. But but it's interesting to talk about this. Uh, when she back in 2018, her take home was just a skosh under a hundred million, ninety nine point six million dollars in 2018, down to twenty three point eight million. And of course, that is. Um, that is because of lack of touring. And, and some of the artists, as we go down on the list, are on the list because they just happen to be have a few tour dates before everything went south. Yeah, um, and it's, the business, as you point out, is just so different uh, for 2020. Uh, recorded music royalties, you know, we're talking sales streams and publishing, collectively grew 56%. In 2020, from yeah. uh, 197 million to 308 million, that's crazy. Yeah. I, I, I never would have thought it would have been, you know, that high prior to seeing those reports that we talked about last week. Individually, artist streaming royalties increased a whopping 82 percent year over year. 82 yeah. percent. Um, so, you know, sales royalties, digital and physical, were up 39 percent. Uh, a trend that continues this year. So this list really breaks down 22 artists and eight, uh, well, 22 contemporary artists and 18 heritage artists. And they said that only living acts were included on the list. You talked about number one, uh, Taylor Swift. Number two was Post Malone, um, right. who was number six last year and brought in $23.2 million dollars. But he was, of course, he snuck in some touring. So he, tw of that 20, $23.2, $12 million, a little over 12, 12.4 was from touring. 
So had he not had that, it looks like he would have made about, oh, I don't know, not, not again, not that this is, <laughs> he would have made about uh, 10, 10.7 million, give or take. So right. still not a bad day. And basically getting back to, to your friend Taylor Swift also, that broke down for her to about 10.6 million in streams. Sales were 10 million, publishing 3.2 million. Um, and you know you, you you could once you see the number of streaming you can kind of calculate the publishing obviously for yeah. most of these artists. Number three, by the way, there were some other surprises on here. By the way, a couple of groups I'd never heard of that were on this list. But number three is Celine Dion. That surprised now, she, me. But she too got some touring in. Um, she did about seventeen million dollars. Well, touring. most of it. 17 yes. million of the 17.5. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so this is really uh, an odd comparison. But remember, this is U.S. only. I'm going to touch on global in just a second when we go through the top 10 here. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was live. That was touring. And by the way, her, tw- her 23 shows that she got in on that Courage World Tour... 40 almost 50 million dollars in ticket sales in a in 23 shows that's holy cow <laughs> serious so she's not making a lot of money in streaming oh well although two yeah 200 not, yeah not comparatively you know and i think they mean uh, they they forgot the k on that i think they mean 290,000 not yeah, i think you're i think you're right. yeah <laughs> and uh, number 4 uh the eagles at 16.3 million and this had some touring too, about eleven million dollars in touring. But you know, two point seven million dollars worth of streaming, nine, almost a million dollars in sales, a little over a million dollars in publishing. Again, U.S. But uh, for a crazy year, sixteen point three million dollars for the Eagles. I take it. Uh, number five, Billie Eilish at a little under fifteen million, fourteen point seven. Uh, she did again also sneak in a little bit of touring. She a got a million, million bucks for touring. Yeah. Uh, but the principal thing in her portfolio was streaming and publishing. Oh yeah, uh, almost just, almost the same amount, right? Yeah, a little about which is strange. That's actually surprising. Um, she had, according to this, she had five point nine million in streaming, five point seven million in publishing, and her yeah. sales were two point one million. So. I, I find that number for publishing interesting. Well, of course, she had so many, so many of songs that were on the radio. So that's going to be a gigantic income stream right there. So that, I, that's what I guess what it would attribute to. So Yeah, that's right. And then um, number six, Drake, uh, 14.2 million. And most of that came from streaming. There was zero in touring uh, from yeah. Drake. Um, exactly. uh, you know, almost two million in publishing, but really the bulk of of Drake's revenue, um, that fourteen point two, uh, was from streaming. Uh, Queen comes in next. Uh, they're at number five, and int- one of the th- one of the things that was interesting in this article was it says Queen, which owns its own masters. I didn't know that. I, yeah. I I thought they owned them for maybe the U.S., but I didn't know. Maybe they maybe that's what. Oh, this is U.S. only. This is U.S. But we're going to talk just briefly about the companion piece to this. Uh, Ed Chrisman wrote this, and he wrote the other one as well. And uh, not to be a spoiler, but Queen is number one in the global view. Yes. But we'll get there in a second. Right, right, right. So Queen's breaks down to 5.5 in streaming million, uh, sales 5.3 million, and publishing 2.4 million. But of course, yeah. they had their $500, more than $500, I think, limited edition colored vinyl studio collection box set. I have it. Which you have. I yes, love you it. Yeah. Have. Oh my gosh. It's and I amazing. think I have almost every one of those albums, but they are destroyed from being played so much. 
Yeah, you know, the the only disappointment for me on that box set, and it's phenomenal. It's got the booklet, uh, not booklet, it's a book. It's like a coffee yeah. table book. It's the studio recordings. Yeah. And one of my favorite records, uh, you know, coming out of high school was the Queen, you know, like live Double killers. Live. Yeah. Live killers. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Um, yeah. I had the opportunity to photograph them twice. And so I actually saw that show, that tour, and um, I'm still looking for a really high quality uh, vinyl on on live killers uh yeah. number eight uh the beatles Speaking of yeah which uh you know um it's really interesting how that split up sales and streaming are almost equal a little over five million dollars and then 2.6 million dollars in publishing again this is u.s so the beatles right around uh 13 million most interesting on this particular artist or band is uh, they ranked third in physical sales, selling 671,000 copies of its albums, 78% of which were vinyl reissues. And of course, those are priced higher than CDs and mm-hmm. they pay higher royalties. But can you imagine roughly 80% of six of almost 700,000, you know, you're, you're, they themselves sold more than a half a million copies of their records on vinyl. Which is unbelievable. It is. To, it to is. have that conversation in 2020, 2021, <laughs> I should say. Or 2020, yes, for these sales. Yeah. Uh, number nine, I didn't know who Young Boy Never Broke Again was. Did you? No. Nope. <laughs> I never heard of them. Well, I'm like 105 uh, him, years old. So, you know, What's as that? much as I, I'm about 105 <laughs> oh, yes. years old, I try to keep up, uh, you know, with these things. I, I'm sure my uh, my business partner, Jeff Mosco, who puts together or helps put together those now, that's where the I now can series. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure that he knows uh, who this is. Um, but I had to kind of uh, Google it <laughs> and take a look. <laughs> but $10 million in streaming, that's not nothing. I mean, that's no. most of uh, what Young Boy Never Broke Again uh, got. Yeah. Uh, number 10, Lil Baby at 11.7 million, uh, 9.1 in streaming sales, about 150,000 and 2.2 for, uh, publishing. He also got a little little teeny bit of touring, $250,000, give or take. So, uh, yeah. And then number 11 is the weekend. Yeah. (laughs) We could go through the whole list. I think we'll, we'll stop it right there. It's number 11. I do want to touch base really quickly on the companion story, which was, um, the global money makers. And we're just going to talk about the top five because we, you know, we could talk about this all day. Um, just with the top five only because, you know, number one, uh, was queen, you know, so globally, it it was 400 well it was 48.7 million and you know it was really hard to actually calculate you know this revenue it's not as easy as you would think no. um the Ed points out that, you know, although the music business is an increasingly global enterprise, reliably measuring the income of artists who are popular on an international scale remains an inexact science. September 2020 launch of Billboard's global charts, you know, which are based on digital track sales and streaming reports over 200 territories has made the process more accurate, but many key metrics such as authoritative physical and digital album sales are currently unobtainable. So they talk about the process in which they put this together. It'll just give you kind of a, an indication, but it's not the same. You know, you and I were looking at the U.S., you know, where Taylor Swift was number one. Mm-hmm. Well, in the global, Queen was number one, and yeah. she's number two. Didn't hurt, didn't hurt to have a great movie come out with Queen music in it. So, um, 
But still, you know, the, the fact that we're in 2021, we're talking about Queen uh, more than 20... Oh, gosh, it's been... Almost, when did Freddie die? 91? Um, somewhere around there? You know, it's been almost 30 years since he's been gone, and if not 30 years. And it's, it's a testament to the, uh, the timelessness of Queen... It's remarkable, and like you, I saw them in the day with Freddie, and absolutely amongst my top five greatest concerts of all time that I've seen. Yeah, and you listen to those records; they still hold up, and no one sounds like that. Yeah, they are, you know, and there's uh, they're unique. Um, and number three, uh, Billie Eilish, uh, which um, globally that makes sense. Um, she's she's super popular, you know, ex US uh, total income estimated at around $33 million. Um, and 13.6 of that is from streaming. So um, it's that's a, a very healthy year for what some consider to be a tragic year for the music industry. Yeah, yeah. And and some, you know, bright spots, as you, you said, you know, the, the vinyl sales and physical sales. You know, people were just sitting around and but they were listening to a lot of music to get them through, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, yeah. I was surprised to see Post Malone at number five on the worldwide uh, list. Yeah, you know, BTS was number four. I would have thought BTS, just from everything that we read and reported on in the last year, it just seemed like they were breaking records everywhere, and their streams were ridiculous. And to see that you know they were number four, and you know, right on their heels was post Malone. I mean, yeah, very close. You know, uh, BTS was $31.5 million uh, and post Malone was almost $30 million. So, you know, less, uh, you know, less than uh, a million dollars separating them. That surprises me that he was that popular. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing against post Malone, but he's not at against all. Billie Eilish and BTS and yeah. Taylor Swift and yes. And Queen. So there you exactly. So, all right. Uh, no surprise here with this next article. This is uh, Jacobs Media Strategies, the great website from uh, uh, Jacobs Media, which yeah. is a really good read. And again, talk about inside baseball. I mean, there's yeah. some really great things in there and well-written articles. And uh, I, 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 I read this pretty regularly. Um, this this website, you know, from uh, Fred Jacobs, of Fred, course, the president for a long time. Oh yeah, but I don't know if you knew this, but um, he's kind of known for originating classic rock as a radio format. I did not know that. Not yeah. surprised though, actually. Yeah, um, Way to go, Fred. Yeah, exactly. But uh, let's talk about vinyl keeps setting records. Um, you know, we've we've kind of talked about this so much lately, but it's uh, it is pretty stunning when you talk about. Again, you know, we were there for the for the wind down of vinyl in mm -hmm. the day, which mm -hmm. to my mind was, boy, you know, it, it, like around 1990. That's when yeah. I really remember it kind of really winding down. Yeah, 1983 or so, I was working uh, at a record store and CDs started coming in. And you and I talked about this, the very first, you know, like all digital recording, Ry Cooter, uh, Bop Till You Drop. Bop Till You Drop, yep. And... Uh, then I went to work for Tower, uh, Tower Records, um, from about, oh, I would say 84 to 89, roughly in that area. And that's where we watched, you know, just year after year, the bins flipped from being vinyl to, to CD. 
Yeah. And uh, to, to kind of put the exclamation point, uh, of course, uh, this is the Associated Press reporting this, that while the entertainment industry mostly suffered through 2020, sales of vinyl records surge up an impressive 29%, contributing $626 million in sales. And vinyl is now outselling compact discs. Yeah. As he says, impressive for a music format written off for dead not so many years ago. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. I would say that I the 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 kind of resurgence didn't surprise me. What has surprised me is the ferocity of that resurgence. Yeah, um, and, and he points factor. out, and I think this is why uh, one of the main reasons why vinyls had a resurgence is uh, you know record store day. Yes, uh, you yes. know Michael Kurtz and that great team. Uh, they've done such a great job at raising awareness and helping record stores. And during the pandemic, a lot of them were in really deep trouble um, yes. because they they live hand to mouth. They're not getting rich doing this. And th- so, Record Store Day, which started in 2007, really brought vinyl to, you know, because there were exclusive pieces that would be sold there. Mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of them. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Fred Jacobs, who writes this piece, talks about, you know, going to, um, you know, Jack White's, um, you know, Third Man Records uh, vinyl stamping plant and going through and taking a tour. And, you know, it's become this romantic, uh, cool thing again. It, it, it's worth reading the article just to see the picture of, the the plant Jack White's plant. Um, <laughs> I, I won't tell you anymore. You just should see it. It's super cool. It's beautiful. And, and it is. You know, it's it, there is. You and I have been. Have, I think last week we we used the word steampunk to kind of describe it. And it really is. It is. It is a a process that is seventy years old, eighty years old, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. And uh, it is. It is. It, you know, and it's not set and forget, you know, and, and that we've, we've read several articles that talk about how it just, there's so many nuances to it. Yeah. It's a different and experience. It, it can go south fast. And yeah. he also talks about, you know, the sales of turntables and he shows a picture of a rose gold runwell model that is $2,500 and right. people, you know, I mean, people are buying them and However, you can of course go to Best Buy and get something for a hundred bucks, but right, it just depends what you want. But yeah. he, he brings this up because you know I, I visited Third Man. You know, there he talks about this um, record, uh, or I'm sorry, this turntable shop a couple of doors down, right. and that they have all these different turntables. And I love turntables. I you know I don't have an expensive one. I have a decent one with you know some reference speakers so I can listen to test pressings. But I'm not an audiophile, but I have friends that are. And it's just so crazy when you visit and look at their equipment and how meticulous they are with these super expensive yeah. turntables. And they sound amazing. But again, I'm not an audiophile, so I'll listen to a great song on an AM radio. I don't care. <laughs> but I do appreciate those who uh, get into this because it's it's a whole different thing. Yeah, and again, it's such a tactile experience, you know. And it's it's it is um, you know it's one we grew up with, but but especially for like my kids, you know, they it's just it's kind of like wow, that's Back to the Future, you know. It's it's a weird cool thing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because he mentions in here this millennial project that he worked on. Um, It's a study of Gen Y, which if you Mm -hmm. listen last 
week. You know that that's people born roughly between 1981 and 1996. But the study of Gen Y for public radio in partnership with PRPD, and it revealed that there are a lot of 20-somethings that are collecting vinyl records. And mm -hmm. I can tell you, you know, I have four, you know, kids in that age group, and they love vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. They, call it, they, they, they say they went and bought some vinyls. <laughs> <laughs> it's just oh, so cute to so hear good. that it's adorable yeah, exactly it's well and it's so neat to see I, I mean it's still a gas to go into you know any big box retailer and and see the albums for sale and then see and it's like wait what year is this again yeah. you know it's my just, local target has this whole row yeah. of of vinyl did you ever see the movie high fidelity of course. Of oh my course. God. I live that. You know, I worked, <laughs> I worked in an indie for a little over four years, uh, Rising Sun Records in Salem, Oregon. And then I worked for uh, Tower Records in Portland, Oregon for nearly five years. And then, of course, when I started working with Universal, I called on uh, Tower yeah. Records. I had a really great exchange uh, on Facebook this week with George Scarlett, who used to head up operations for Tower Records. And whenever I'm in Sacramento, we, we get together for, for dinner. He's one of my favorite people. Um, but just about the uh, the economics of streaming and somebody had posted something on Facebook that was just wrong mm -hmm. and I gently asked them to check out the report that you and I talked about last week the UK Parliament's you know mm -hmm. um, economics of streaming it's not as simple and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole but it's not as simple as just paying more per stream it, I, I wish it was, you know, there's yeah. all these other things involved with, you know, ARPU average revenue per user. There's the spatial, uh, Atmos that we could have charged more for. Um, the last thing I'll say on it, I promise is, you know, we we're charging like 10 bucks to have, you know, like 70 million tracks in your pocket. Um, that's an incredible, value. unbelievable value, unbelievable value. Absolutely. So it, it's, we live in wonderful times in terms of convenience and, you know, if, if the ability to go deep without, you know, I mean, when you and I've talked about so much, you know, whatever an album cost in, in, I don't know, 1980, what if is it $9 or something, you know, and the, and the minimum wage that back in those days was like three bucks, three thirty-five, something like that. So you had to work three or four hours if you were like a kid to get a vinyl album. And, and so you were super selective, you know, which is why you also had a cassette deck so you could borrow your friend's albums and, and make tapes of them. No. Um, you know, at least some some people that I've heard did that. You Certainly take that me. back. Yes, but <laughs> you know it was it was a considerable fight. You know when somebody had a giant vinyl collection in 1980, let's say that was a hell of an investment. Yeah. And now you can have an infinite collection at ten bucks a month. It, it's it, you know, but you can't, our kids don't know how how great they have it. Well, that's why I had a great record collection um, when I was younger and a crappy car. Yes, yes. We make choices, Mike. Yes, we do. And we made those choices and we are sticking by them. So, all right. <laughs> this next one was also really interesting um, and frightening in many ways. This is uh, from Amplify You. How a viral song on TikTok turned into an artist's worst nightmare. And you, I'm sure you're thinking, yeah. well, how can that be possible? And it, it also shined a light in this article on something that, you know, I kind of, I kind of heard about them, but I never really was paying much attention. And this is the kind of 
sort of rental of beats and of chord progressions or of it's kind of a it's sort of like sampling but it's but, it, but there's a, there's other business oper- transactions that can happen now yes that weren't available in years past yeah and, it's a big business um i was talking recently to um paul stanley from kiss his son mm-hmm. evan is a recording artist Re- mm-hmm. really um, talented young man. And he has a company with a partner where they create stems and beats and things. And there are a a lot of people that I know are doing that because if you're good at it and Evan is, you can build a business on that because people need that. And you and I growing up, uh, it was singer songwriters creating their own thing and they rarely, you know, when I was younger, they didn't even have samples. It wasn't until years later that people started sampling other things and putting them into snippets their songs. of songs, putting them into songs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The drummer yeah. made up the beat, and that's kind of the way it was. And uh, not anymore. But it also speaks to kind of the the super specialization. And even in, you know, you you we've and you and I've talked about this a lot. You even if you look at the credits on any number of, of songs that are out now, you see you know five songwriters or five co-writers or five producers, and you know you have these. And it, it, even in baseball, you know, you've got the middle reliever, you've got the late middle reliever, you've got the closer. And so everything is so super specialized now. Yeah. And that's you're seeing that in recording anyway. You bring in people who specialize in choruses, who yeah. specialize in bridges or in beats or whatever. And so this this article was about an artist named Caleb Hearn. And he had a song, which I, I, I had heard before. I'm not sure how I had heard about it, but it's it's a song called Always Be. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, he used a piano instrumental he found on the internet as the song's foundation. What, what could, could go, go wrong? wrong? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So he released it back at the end of December of 2020, and it started kicking, and he mm-hmm. gets this call, right, from a guy named Justin Goldman. As you do. As you do, and he runs a label management and publishing company called 94 Sounds. And he gave him a call and he said, hey, I'd like you to, I want to help you, you know, reach some mainstream success. And, but then just, or, uh, but then Caleb said, well, you know, I've, I've already got a manager. And uh, what he found out is apparently that this chap who called him, Justin Goldman from 94 Sounds, had actually purchased the track. He owned the master. And so suddenly... Um, I believe it's called leverage he had over this. Gentleman. I think that's the word. And, you know, and of course, like he, the, the kid didn't expect the success that it was going to have, nor did he understand copyright law. And uh, this is where it went south. But there are these, there are leasing agreements when it comes to beats mm-hmm. and, and snippets like this. There are outright purchases. It's something, yeah, boy, it's much more complicated if, than you might imagine. If you are, if you are, if you are diving into this pool, boy, you better be prepared because a lot of things can go wrong. And this article yeah. is really about that. It's fascinating. Yeah. It is fascinating. And there are several articles in your morning coffee this week on TikTok. And three of the four are super positive. Um, there's a lot of great things going on on TikTok and a lot of artists who are generating revenue and growing their fan base. And look, that's all good. But this is kind of that you know, unspoken about 
area, but this doesn't just happen on TikTok. You know, we've seen this happen uh, on Twitch. We've seen this happen on Spotify and Apple Music. Whenever you're using someone else's intellectual property, someone else's beats or sampling from their music, um, it's not a world anymore where you beg for forgiveness, you know, instead of permission. Right. You exactly. have to do the due diligence, and I recommend to people all the time. And I'm I'm so fortunate that I know uh, three or four really good music entertainment attorneys that understand this and can simplify it. Um, we've had uh, some of them on the Music Biz Weekly podcast, like Chris Castle, for example, who we've mm-hmm. talked about so. his stories. And I think the the moral to this story is if you're recording a song or putting together a song or crafting a song that you're putting online, make sure you know who uh, has the rights to what. And, you know, if this thing takes off, as we always say, it's not about the money. It's about the money. You know, it could, you, it, it could end up in tears. Well, in a lot of these uh, beats and these kind of, you know, chord progressions and licks, you know, they're out there with lots of artists. And so producers that create them basically license them or they lease them to tons of different people. And if the song's not a commercial hit, well, no big deal. But when the song becomes a commercial hit, yeah, if it does, then suddenly you've got copyright and ownership issues that are staring you in the face, and you owe somebody some money. Yeah, and that you're getting paid money, and but you better you have to make sure that money goes out. Otherwise, things get ugly very yeah. fast. Yeah. And, you know, cautionary it's, it's tale. Cautionary tale, and and also sort of a glimpse behind an area, you know, in, into an area that, you know, a lot of people have no idea even exists. So, and I knew just a little bit about it, and I'm just stunned at how things can go south really fast. So, yeah, I've seen this happen <laughs> with um, a few artists that they were sampled, mm-hmm. um, or um, they had created a beat, you know, for a certain artist or song. Um, and then it kind of, uh, took on a life of its own, you know, maybe it was picked up by a major and they didn't do their due diligence uh, on it, but it's, it's definitely a thing. <laughs> it's a thing to be careful. About. Yeah. So, but again, you know, it's the same thing. And, and you know, you and I were in the business, uh, when, you know, the, the, when hip hop and rap was really becoming the, the commercial force that it was. And, you know, I think the industry didn't quite understand really how these songs were created and weren't able to identify sometimes the samples. Right. And, you know, the, it, it took a few, a little while for the rules to be formulated. Right. Because it was for, new. We, we it was never new. done that before. Mm-hmm. And back then, people were uh, begging for forgiveness and not getting permission. There were certain albums <laughs> that yes. could never be made today. Um, because of all the different samples that they had uh, in them. So something to look out for. There you go. And then and I had heard the, the next article, this is on Trapital, by the way, uh, will Songfinch become cameo for songs? Yeah. And I had heard anecdotally about Songfinch, but I, I, didn't, I didn't put two and two together. I didn't really know what it was. I just heard, oh, that's kind of a cool name, actually. Yeah. I didn't quite understand what it does, but... Yeah, what it does do it's a, it's a music tech startup that that offers personalized songs for just uh, for one ninety nine for one hundred ninety nine dollars. Users select the style of their song and share stories to shape the lyrics. 
Songfinch then matches users with an artist who writes and records the song for the user. Mm-hmm. The customer gets a personal use license in perpetuity. By the way, let me repeat that. Customers get a personal use That's license right. in they perpetuity. They can't monetize. They can't monetize the song. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of cool. You, you, you can't actually, you can't choose the specific artist. But right. it's neat. It's cameo for songs. It is. Uh, we've been into this for years. This this company is doing something uh, very cool. They're going to kind of bring it mainstream. But I can tell you, you know, my company, Label Logic, we've been doing this for years. Um, mm-hmm. For example, one of our clients, uh, a band, uh, the Licorice Quartet. Now, this is three of the four guys from Jellyfish. Um, they got together and recorded some amazing uh, new music, a couple of EPs out if, you, if you're if you into that stuff. Really great. And one of the things we set up for them was a website for um, fans that you could go onto the website and you could have Roger Manning write a song with you or write a song for you um, or record something for you. Same with uh, Tim Smith and, and Eric Dover. And it was really great. It was very successful. Um, we always talk about experiences and this falls into that bucket of experiences. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cameo is really cool. You know, I, I think I told you I had the, the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. Absolutely. Wish my dad happy birthday. That was pretty cool. <laughs> um, and you know, there are other platforms like that. Thrills.co.uk does the same thing. And those things are really, really great to have one of your, and they're, They've got sports stars on there, music. They've got everything, and it's it's really cool, and the prices vary. But for this, it's it's like a 50-50 split. So if you are accepted into Songfinch as a songwriter um, and somebody chooses you or, or you do the song for them, then you get $100 of that. So it's, it's like a 50-50 split. And... I think it's really cool. The The thing that's missing, though, is that with Cameo, you can choose, you know, Alice Cooper and have him do, say yes. something. And in this, you basically, let's say you want to write a song for your significant other, you might send them, well, this is his or her favorite foods or songs, or here's a moment that I want in there, which is really cool. I mean, what a great gift to get a personalized mm-hmm. song. Right. I, I think that's really great. But when this graduates to, oh, I can pay X amount of dollars and have Phineas, you know, write a song yeah. for me. That's that's a whole different ball game. And I think it's heading that where that way. But um, I, I love everything about this. You know, um, it's just another in this line of experiences. And they reference from this article. Um, an article from July 13th in Rolling Stone with the headline, um, why gift an album when you can send a personalized song? Mm-hmm. And the, you know, it talks about how, you know, the people who are investing in this company, you know, it's like the weekend, well, the weekend's manager, I should say, um, Atlantic records, CEO, um, Craig Coleman is an investor, right? So there's some high level people who believe that this is going to be, uh, a big thing. Um, I like where it's headed. I like where the industry is headed with some of these experiences. Well, you know, and this this is kind of the the growth of of you know the the backstage pass or the 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 bonus thing meet on tickets, greet, the paid meet, meet and, and greets, greet. exactly the paid meet and greet. And so, um, I 
you know, I, I think a lot, it's, it was just money left on the table that nobody was thinking about. And now everybody's thankfully. That's right. About it. And we're finding more and more of those revenue streams. And I got to give a shout out to Michael Branville, my co-host for the Music Biz Weekly podcast, because he was one of the very first people to do the paid meet and greets. He uh -huh. was working with Kiss. Uh -huh. And this is, I think, around 2000, maybe a little north of the year 2000. And the thing that really surprised him and I think to a degree Doc and the band is that, you know, let's say I'm going to make up a number. You charge $1,000 and you get to meet the band, get your picture taken with them, and you get a merch package and first few row seats, whatever. But... It was these hardcore fans that would do it over and over again. They didn't do it once. Yeah. They were like doing multiple dates uh, on the show and or of the show. And I work with you know some other artists where I'm really surprised. You know, sometimes we laugh. It's like the same dozen people at every show. You know, right. like we even went to Canada um, with one of our artists for a few dates. And those same people from the United States were at every one of those Canadian <laughs> shows up front. It's like, don't you? You guys have jobs? I mean, how do you how do you do this? This is crazy. But if you get a hardcore fan, absolutely. Super it's like fan. that old You're, thing, yeah, we talk about if you just get a thousand fans, you know, uh -huh. that are willing yeah. to do those experiences, that's a business. You're talking some serious money. Absolutely. Well, great article and fun stuff to think about. Another thing of this new and evolving business that we call the music business. Um, hey, by the way, let's, so, so those are the main five articles, but let's talk about the Your Morning Coffee recommend. Thank you. That's I, I really wanted to give a shout out to uh, a few really cool things. And, and we talked about this um, and we put it in Your Morning Coffee as Your Morning Coffee recommended this week in the newsletter. And there's three things that I want to put on people's radar. Um, so check out the newsletter. But the first one is uh, the Amplify Music Conference. Um, if you missed it, uh, don't worry. You can now watch or listen to those workshops, those conversations online for free. Amplify Music. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's really great. I, I was on one of the panels. Um, it was amazing. I watched a bunch of the panels. So... Um, do yourself a favor and check out your morning coffee, click on that link and you can watch any of those workshops for free. The second one is, um, my friend, Mike Warner, um, put out a book a while back called work hard playlist hard, and it really focused on user generated playlists and how to optimize. But this new edition, um, work hard, playlist hard, uh, number two, um, it says actionable advice to help artists grow their audience on music streaming platforms. It's much, much more than that. I'll read you just really quickly a little blurb that I wrote about it. It says in a music business full of con artists and scammers, uh, Mike shares his experience, best practices across all platforms, step-by-step -step instructions, not to game the system, but to optimize for it. I've had the pleasure of collaborating with Mike on podcasts, live streams, Zoom chats, and even a few sentences for this book. Um, I was honored <laughs> to work with Mike a little bit and do some intro uh, paragraphs to a few chapters of this book. I'm telling you, by far, this is the best um, DIY or anybody who wants to know about how to optimize for socials and streaming. Um, I think it's up for pre-order right now, um, but check it out. That's called Work Hard, Playlist Hard, um, and that's the, the second edition. And then the last thing on the Your Morning Coffee recommended is um, my friend Keith Jopling uh, from Midia has one of the best series of playlists 
on DSPs. It's called the Som- Song Sommelier. One more time, the Song Sommelier. And the best uh, title of any playlist, by the way. Yes. And the covers of these playlists are hand-painted. They're hand-drawn art. And he's done them across dozens of of your favorite artists. And it's highly curated. There's always a little story about it. The the new one is uh, PJ Harvey. Um, but do yourself a favor. Check out the song Sommelier wherever you uh, stream your music. So those are your morning coffee recommended. There you go. And on that note, Jay, we do need to wrap up episode number 50. Can you believe it? Closing We're in marching. on year number one. To number one, exactly. Wow. And without uh, without the kind and, and groovy folks that listen to us, we could not have done this. So thank you to everyone who listens to this because Jay and I more than appreciate it. Thank we you so much. Uh, it is the sunshine. It is the wind, it is the wind beneath our wings. <laughs> it sure <laughs> is. I think I should say. Yes. So on that note, Jay, have a great rest of your weekend. You too, and folks, brother. have a great week when you listen to this on Monday. We certainly appreciate it. This has been the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. We will see you next week. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.